Well, we find ourselves again in Luke chapter 13. I would encourage you to turn there with me, if you would, please. It's on eight, page 872 if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. We just sang a, a mighty song that, that's fitting with our passage for today about letting your kingdom come, your will be done, which, of course, echoes the, the prayer of our Savior that we just covered a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 11, where he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we look around, maybe, maybe you wonder, as I do sometimes, is God really in control? Maybe you wonder, is it right for us to sing? Is it right for us to pray that God's power would be present on this earth? And if it's right to pray that, what does that look like? I mean, how does that show up? I mean, should we pray that, that, um, that God would, um, has, how does that song put it, uh, bring this nation back, uh, help change the atmosphere, let, let your kingdom power and presence be known? Is it right for us to pray that? Is it right for us to expect that? And if so, then what does that look like? How does that happen? What does that, how does that show up from day to day? You know, I think the struggle that we have as we, as we look around, it's really easy for us at times to, to wonder, is God really in control? Is his power really at work? Is God really active in, in this world today? Or are the forces of evil having their way? I think that same question was a question that the Apostle Paul addressed to the church of Ephesus. He's writing them, and, and one, of the, one of the underlying themes of, of, of his letter to the, the, the church of Ephesus, and especially his prayer for them, as they're looking around, they're experiencing suffering, they're wondering whether or not God is really in control as a result of the circumstances that, that are happening to them. Paul is addressing this and, and wants them to know about God's power. So that in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, he's praying for them. He says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you, you in my prayers. So what does he pray for? Well, one of the things that he prays for is found for us in verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That kind of power. The Apostle Paul wants this church that, by the way, a church that without Christ had understood a measure of supernatural power. If we remember the account of the church in Ephesus, there in Acts chapter 19, once there was conversions that took place, there was this massive um, book burning that, that happened where they were burning all of their books of witchcraft and, and 30,000 pieces of silver worth of books they burned. They, they were acquainted with supernatural power, and the Apostle Paul wanted them to understand God's power is greater. God's power is better. God's power produces the right results, and it always wins. 
So regardless of, of what you're seeing around you, the, the trouble that faces you, the heartache that you might come to experience, God's power is at work. It might be concealed, it might be hidden, but, but it's, it's working. You can trust it. And so he continues this theme in chapter 3, praying for the same kinds of things where he prays for the church in Ephesians 3, verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be, here it is, strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. There's power available. The power of God through the indwelling Holy Spirit. The power of God through the living and abiding Word of God that that will have its way in the hearts that God chooses to bring to Himself. It's unstoppable. It will have its effect. It will have its way. And and, and then at the end of this prayer, Paul, Paul addresses this praise to God. He says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than what we can ask or think. And I, and I love how the New King James draws this out. He does exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ever ask or think. This, this super abounding power of God. And it's that same power, by the way, he says, according to the power at work within us. That kind of power. That kind of dynamic strengthening, unstoppable power of God that resides in the heart of every believer through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that when Paul concludes this letter to the Ephesians in chapter 6, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You know, the Apostle Paul is preoccupied with power. And the Apostle Paul understands that we as believers, while we are intellectually aware of the power of God, so often we are not living and existing within the reality of that power. So what kind of power are we talking about? Well, our passage today in Luke chapter 13 is kind of bringing and helping us become more aware of what that power came to do and what the power of the kingdom promises to accomplish. And and so as we, we walk away this morning, after having read through this passage in Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 10, moving all the way to verse 21, we're gonna walk away the... The, the test of whether or not this passage is really connected to our hearts, has resonated deep inside, is that we're going to walk away like this woman who was healed, walked away glorifying God because she came to understand the power of God, not only in helping to resolve a physical ailment and disability in her life, but especially the power of God to change her from the inside out. She glorified and praised God because of kingdom power. Jesus has been preaching about the kingdom from as as far back as we have read in the Gospel of Luke. 
It has permeated and punctuated his ministry from start to finish. It is really what Jesus' teaching has been about. He came to preach about the kingdom. And so, in preaching about the kingdom, Jesus came not only to give the words of the kingdom, but to demonstrate that the life-changing power of that word, which changes us from the inside out, is also a power that can change us on the outside too. And so the Father confirms the life-giving word of his son Jesus by, by, by allowing the kingdom power to show up and be demonstrated in the mighty works that Jesus will accomplish. Our passage today in Luke chapter 13, verse 18 which is the second kind of section of our time together, Jesus says, he said, therefore, and then he begins to talk about the kingdom of God. And, and so while we may not see a connection necessarily in this healing scenario in the synagogue, we may not see a connection to the kingdom itself. It is really meant to be an illustration where, where Jesus will unpack the reason why he did this miracle in the synagogue. He will unpack it to help his audience understand the direct connection between that power that was produced in, in healing this woman is the same power that will have its way in the kingdom. In some ways it will be visible, and in some ways it will be hidden. But it will have its effect. Going back several chapters, we, we can see that this, the, the, the connection between the kingdom word and the kingdom work has been evident in the ministry of Christ, in the ministry of his disciples. In Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says, He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. God, by his grace, allowed the kingdom power of the word to be accompanied by and reinforced by the, the power of the kingdom work so that the disciples who were proclaiming this message of the kingdom were able to demonstrate the power of that kingdom so that people could see, certainly, these men are from God. In Luke chapter 10, the same kind of thing happens. It says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and every place where he himself was about to go. He says, Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you kingdom presence, and kingdom power. This preaching of the kingdom, which, which was meant to show that the, the power of the kingdom has come to confront the, the authorities and the powers of the kingdom of this world. That, that the, the king has come to exercise power in this present day. But what is the kingdom? It's important for us to maybe just briefly review what are we talking about when we talk about kingdom? Because when, when we think about kingdoms, especially in terms of, of fairy tales, what we think about um, a, a particular place, and, and certainly that is a part of it. A, a kingdom involves a place. The kingdom of God is mentioned 33 times in the Gospel of Luke. The kingdom of heaven is mentioned 32 times in the Gospel of Matthew. The place where God is, the place uh, where he rules, where he has dominion. Ultimately, we anticipate 
that, that God's kingdom will come to this earth, but, but currently God is reigning in heaven. That's why Jesus can pray in Luke chapter 11, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We fully expect that at one point in the future, Jesus will reign on the earth as he has promised throughout the centuries. But it's not just a place, it's also a people. The kingdom involves a people, a community. Every kingdom has subjects. And as Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount, he he describes kind of the the quality of of who those kingdom subjects are as he works through the the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 3. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That the kingdom, as Jesus describes it, is a kingdom that, that, that includes people, not just a king and a place, but, but subjects that, that he's ruling over who are loyal to him, devoted to him, who serve him. And finally, this issue of the kingdom or this message of the kingdom is helping us understand the presence and the power of the king. As we found already in Luke chapter 10, verse 9, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. Well, in in what way is this true? In what way has the kingdom of heaven come near? Well, it, it, it wasn't a place But as God was creating a people, he was demonstrating his authority as king over this earth and over all of the things that disrupt this world's function, this world's order. The king has come to show his authority as king, his power in this world. So every healing that Jesus performed was meant to demonstrate himself as Messiah and helped to demonstrate that the king had come. The king had authority over things physical, over things spiritual. He was in charge. So when we come to this passage today, our passage in Luke chapter 13, it helps to raise the issue for us that that this, this kingdom had come and, and this woman's release from Satan's um, grip which Jesus refers to, it raises the issue of authority. There is a confrontation between kingdoms. There's kingdoms in conflict, you might say. The kingdom of this world that is in direct opposition to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus, in in this passage, will help us understand that he is in control. He is in charge. The kingdom of heaven will prevail. So let's look at the, the nature in the character of the kingdom, beginning in verse 10. It says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. What we're going to see that that the presence of the kingdom is is adorned with mercy and might. 
The presence of the kingdom comes with mercy and might. And here, in this first section, the kingdom presence is on full display. It's displayed for all to see. It's undeniable. Even the ruler of this synagogue has to acknowledge that the the power of God has been at work among them. It's unmistakable. There were many synagogues, not only in Galilee, but also in Judea. The minimum number of Jewish men that would make up a synagogue was, was 10. And so you can imagine in a populous uh, nation of Israel, especially in the populated cities of Judea, there were a number of synagogues uh, that, that, that dotted the landscape. It's, it's said that there were as many as 480 synagogues in Jerusalem alone. So you can only imagine the number of synagogues that, that dotted the landscape. Synagogues existed primarily for the teaching of the Scripture. They they were there as a result of of helping helping the the people to to understand and know what the Old Testament said, but also be instructed in the way and the teaching of the law. Very similar to what we find in the book of of Ezra in Nehemiah, where Ezra is bringing the word, and and the elders are standing before the people, and they're they're giving the sense. This is kind of the the similar idea of of what's happening in the synagogue. A synagogue had no full-time pastors or teachers or priests. It was unlike the temple in that no sacrifices or offerings were were made there at the synagogue, only the, the, the focus of teaching of the word of God. It was a responsibility of the chief priest to conduct worship services from week to week and to approve the teachers or the rabbis who would come. Throughout his ministry, Jesus would often teach in synagogues. We, we saw that going all the way back to Luke chapter 4. But this will be the last time in the Gospel of Luke where, where Jesus is going to be seen in the synagogue. It's just an evidence of this growing hostility against Jesus' ministry and the religious leaders who are opposing him very actively. And, and in this situation here in Luke chapter 13, the, the clear and the direct message and rebuke of Christ to this synagogue leader, word certainly has spread and, and Jesus is, is no longer going to be teaching in the synagogue from this point on in the Gospel of Luke. What we find that as Jesus is teaching, it says, Behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 13 years. This word, behold, is the word surprise. It's, it's, the, it's the word for, for something that is unexpected, that, that while Jesus is teaching, it provides kind of a, this, this impression that while Jesus is teaching, this woman who has been bound for, for 18 years and experiencing this, this disabling uh, disability makes her way into the synagogue and slowly and painfully comes to hear the word that's, that's taught from Christ. Luke describes not only her physical condition, but also her spiritual condition that Jesus will help to point out in verse 16 when he says, she was a daughter of Abraham whom Satan had bound for 18 years. The deliverance of this woman is, is those described. While, while this, there's a, an oppression that's, that's obviously taken place because of Satan, the, the deliverance that is described in the, in the next few verses is described more as a healing than an exorcism. 
If you remember the, the times in which Jesus had cast out demons, he speaks to the demons directly, and in casting out those demons, then the, the oppression of whatever that person is experiencing has been, has been relinquished. But here Jesus speaks directly to this woman. He, he's addressing this disabling um, situation and, and telling her to be freed from this disability. So what, what does it mean that Satan has bound her for 18 years? Well, it, it might be that she was experiencing some measure of oppression, but as we find, even from the book of Ephesians, we, we come to understand from Ephesians chapter 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, it says in chapter 2 verse 1, in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now, <clears throat> excuse me, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And, and as Jesus has come to demonstrate his authority over the kingdom of this world, he, he's addressing the, the repercussions of the sin nature and rebellion against God, that sin which has led to ruin, it's led to death, it's led to disease and decay. And so Jesus has come to confront the kingdom of Satan. He's the preeminent opposer of the kingdom of heaven. And so this woman who's just experiencing, I believe, the consequences or the the disabling nature of the sin that has just filled this world. Jesus has come to oppose that, and imposing that is helping to demonstrate his authority over the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of Satan. So here we see that Jesus is supreme. The authority of of Jesus in the kingdom of heaven is, is demonstrating itself over the authority of the kingdom of this world. This woman who had been a prisoner in her own body for 18 years. Of course, we don't know the extent. We don't, we're not even told the, the specifics of what she was undergoing. Some commentators have suggested that maybe some of her, uh, her vertebrae were, were fused together or there was some sort of paralysis in her muscles which, which made, it, made her unable to, to stand up. But imagine for nearly two decades being hunched over and the, the extra pressure then that would happen on the, on the lower back especially, the effect on its muscles, the, the compounding pain that comes as a result, how that would draw the stares of those in the community, the whispers of children, the pointing of fingers, people avoiding her, shunning her, because if you remember there was a stigma, a stigma that went along with those who experienced these out-of-the-ordinary kinds of consequences, and so they would have automatically assumed there must be something hidden, there must be this, a reason why she is experiencing this disabling work. Concluding that some deep and hidden sin was the culprit for her condition Jesus does what he always does in healing others. He always draws attention to the power of God. And so Jesus, he, he, he encourages her. He, he calls her to himself, our Savior, who is preeminently full of mercy, full of compassion. He doesn't hold her at a distance. Doesn't want 
her, um, her ailment or her struggle to be at a distance from him, but calls her near. And in that respect, forces the entire crowd to respond. They're, they're clearing the, a path for her to come through. The, he, he's drawing attention. He doesn't just heal this woman with a snap of a finger. He doesn't just mutter under his breath. He, his intention is to call attention to this work of God in her life. A miracle is going to happen. The power of the kingdom is going to be on display. Jesus wants to make sure that nobody misses what's about to happen to this woman. They have all shunned, perhaps, for the last 18 years. Jesus is not interested, though, in simply mending broken bodies. Jesus intended to change her heart. He could have stood at a distance, but he says, woman, you are freed from your disability. And instantly she's restored. We find that, however, crippling, uh, although this happened for 18 years of her life, she's healed immediately, she's healed completely, and she's healed permanently. The grammar of the, of the Greek helps to convey the, the permanence of this healing, which would, have, which, which would have happened in her life. And the woman responds, of course, by offering praise. There has been, at least in this situation, a, a change of heart, a, a directing of attention to the glory and praise of God for what he has done. The text does not reveal her spiritual condition before or after her healing, or whether or not she became a true believer in Jesus on that day. But what Jesus did was completely sovereign, it was totally independent of the faith from her. Jesus was not looking for mighty faith in her in order to heal her. He took the initiative. He stepped out. He drew her to himself, and he declared freedom over her. The encouragement for us today. Perhaps there are many of you this morning who have walked into this room as this woman, and maybe your challenges, your, difficult, your, your difficulties, and, and, and even the, the inner hurts and pains that, that you experience are, are totally hidden from view. And Jesus wants you to understand that there is freedom and there is healing that is offered through through him to you. He wants everyone in this room to experience freedom and healing from their pain. Psalm 34, the psalmist puts it this way. Psalm 113, excuse me, verses, two, verses 1 to 5. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles, <laughs> who forgives your iniquity, who heals your diseases. What, what diseases are we talking about, Andrew? Are we, are we talking about diseases that are physical or something else? And primarily, the, the greatest 
human disease that we experience is the, is the issue of sin that has permeated our life that leads us to death and separation from God. And, and, and primarily, that is what the psalmist is addressing, the forgiveness that we can have through God, through Christ. As we are now in this New Testament era, we can experience redemption that he talks about here in verse 4. Redemption from our life, freedom from the pit, crowning us with his love and mercy. We have God now. We're not alienated from him. And through Christ, there is satisfaction, there is joy, and there can be a measure of strength that comes even in the midst of the troubles that you have that may never go away this side of eternity. But the healing that is available primarily is a healing of the soul, a healing of sin, cleansing from the burdens that we have because of rebellion against God. That, that healing, by the way, only comes through faith in Christ. By acknowledging that we're sinners, by understanding that Jesus is the only one who paid for that sin for us on Calvary, on the cross, and it was through his resurrection that we can enjoy life with God, this, this, this freedom from the bondage of sin that only comes one way through Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So we see the kingdom presence was displayed, but we also see the kingdom presence is resisted. How could it be that anybody in in observing this great work of God, this kingdom authority and power, how could anyone resist this? Well, it happens. Here in verse 14, the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. While this woman rejoiced and glorified God, the one who should have been the first in line to rejoice and glorify the work of God, this religious leader, rather is indignant. It describes his fury. It it describes his intense displeasure. The leader's view, of course, is that this healing was a healing, was was a work. But consider the effort that Jesus put into this labor, this work. He spoke and laid his hands on this woman. But the actual power came from God. The actual authority to deliver happened from God. His direct complaint wasn't directed to Christ. He's not, he's not uh, um, bold enough for that. Rather, he addresses the crowd and says, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and not on the Sabbath. The rabbinic rules, which were not, by the way, the rules that God had inserted into the law, they were the traditions of the, of the rabbis and the Pharisees. There were 39 forms of labor that were forbidden on the Sabbath. One of which, by the way, was the number of, or the distance by which you could walk on a given day, on that Sabbath. Only 3,000 feet, which is a little more than a half a mile, was the, was the, the distance in which they were allowed to walk. However, the Mishnah would allow cattle to be led on the Sabbath. It, it, it also allowed them to be tied up on the Sabbath unless they wander. 
And it also describes the wells at which cattle could drink without violating the Sabbath. This ruler had several things that were wrong with his accusation. The woman hadn't actually come for healing. There's no indication from the text that she even knew that Jesus was going to be there. There was, there was nothing in her heart. It had come to her by as much surprise as it had to, the, to Christ. Behold, there was a woman. And Jim, Jesus simply spoke the word, and the healing happened on this day. This, of course, was the same action that was supposed to happen every Sabbath, where the word of God was supposed to be spoken and explained on the Sabbath day, and these words of life were to be met with a healing work inside the heart. This work that Jesus did on the outside was just a demonstration or an illustration of the, of the inner work that the word was always supposed to have as it was taught. God's word has power to heal at the deepest level, the level of spiritual life. The synagogue ruler should have glorified and praised God. He should have known better. And, and while the kingdom presence was displayed and then resisted, Jesus will now defend this kingdom presence in verses 15 to 17. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. Jesus responds directly. He does not mince words. He's not apologetic. He does not sugarcoat his response, his rebuke. He uses the plural hypocrites, indicating not only was the chief or the leader of this synagogue at fault, but, but all of those who kind of rallied around him and took this same posture of criticism. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey? Jesus responds. Jesus uses the same root word here, untie, as the, as, the, as the word that he used for be freed from your bondage, which he will use in verse 16 to be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. If the leader of the synagogue had stopped for a moment to consider, his Sabbath laws that allowed compassion and mercy to animals and yet forbid mercy to people. His compassion was self-centered. It was his own ox or his own donkey that needed water. He didn't want to lose these things that were valuable to him. And so in understanding that this woman was a daughter of Abraham, under the, in the covenant community, and under God's uh, protection and part of God's um, community, <clears throat> their compassion to their own animals should never outperform their, their compassion for God's own people. Your concern to free your animal from the barn should be a clue that you should also rejoice in God freeing this woman from her oppression to Satan. He should have known better. He should have recognized that the Messiah was standing right before him using these same words, be freed, be loosed. 
This is the same expectation that had been communicated by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 61.1, proclaiming liberty to the captives and opening the prison doors to those who are bound. Here it is unfolding right before them. And this religious leader was totally unaware, totally oblivious. Jesus confronts him on this day as a direct application to this demonstration of kingdom mercy and might. We're reminded of those who represent the kingdom of God will value life. They will protect life. They will seek to preserve life. In the the next couple of weeks, if you are a resident of Ohio, you're going to have the opportunity to be an advocate for life. We, we, we know that there's a, a conflict of kingdoms that is taking place. Jesus will describe what our enemy does, what his posture is in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says, the thief comes not, excuse me, I'm quoting from the New King James instead of reading from the ESV. It says, the, the, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Satan's kingdom is characterized by ruin and death and destruction, seeking to dismantle the things that God has created. But the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, will embrace life, will advocate life. Nothing could be more clear in the scripture, and perhaps nothing could be more immediate for us as those who are believers living in the kingdom than what we're going to Uh, encounter in just a couple of weeks of being able to vote for life. Jesus commends life. And those who respond appropriately now to the miracle that has just unfolded before them in verse 17 is Jesus' adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced. The people rejoiced and glorified God. So we saw the presence of the kingdom that comes in mercy and might. We also now see the promise of the kingdom impact in verses 18 to 21. It comes to us in in a couple of parables. The first is the kingdom will be a refuge for all who come. The kingdom will be a refuge for all who come. Notice this parable he says to them in verse 18. What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Jesus is describing this this kingdom in ways that are unexpected. How is it possible that, that such a little seed can grow to such a height and also then be a place of refuge for the birds that come to nest in it? As the people in the first century are looking at Christ's life, this is the kinds of questions they're asking. Who who is this man named Jesus? What has he come to do? We don't see the presence of this this kingdom in the way we expected. We, We expected him to come with power and establish a kingdom and conquer Rome and and help us as a nation to experience freedom from this oppression that is is all around us. It's it's not happening the way we anticipated. It's, It's not as big or as grand or as majestic as we all anticipated. Jesus wants them to understand it will be great and magnificent and broad 
in, in encompassing. It will be a refuge to the nations as we will later find in, in Revelation. But, but at this point, it starts small. It, it starts with, with, with an obscure fig, figure. Can, can anything good come from Nazareth? That was what was said of Jesus. And as Jesus continues his ministry, even as the crowds begin to gather, what, what is left of Jesus' ministry when he ascends to the Father in Acts chapter uh, 1 is just 120 disciples who are, who are there following after Jesus, those who remain loyal to him, just 120 are left from that ministry of Christ. It, mu- it must have, uh, have left people scratching their heads. I-, I thought this was the Messiah. I thought his kingdom would be grand. But Jesus wants his disciples to understand that what starts small will have its way. It will have its effect. And as Jesus describes even in Acts chapter one, you will be my witnesses. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. And here we are through the ages tracing the course of the kingdom power through the generations. And those of you in this room who have bowed the knee to Jesus and believed in him as savior or a beneficiary of this initiating ministry of Christ in the work that he, he, he began back in the first century. And, and so in, in that respect, this, this seed has grown. It's, it's flourished to become this, this plant that now includes as a refuge all who will come and enjoy safety and peace within its branches. Jesus is likely drawing from from a passage in Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 22 to 24, which says, thus says the Lord God, I myself, and I love the initiating work of God. God has promised it, God will do it, and nothing will stand in the way. He says, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar, and I will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will rest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I will bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. So Jesus draws from this this illustration that's, that's provided for us in Ezekiel. And then he kind of turns this, this surprise on us instead of thinking about a, a majestic, tall, and lofty cedar. Now he kind of changes the figure into this, this little lowly uh, mustard seed that grows up and yet still accomplishes the objective that God has had from the very beginning. To allow himself to be a refuge for his people. And then finally, the kingdom will transform every life that is touched by it. It will transform every life that is touched by it. Notice verse 10, excuse me, verse 20. He said again, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. 
The illustration that Jesus uses is of this leaven, which is hidden from view, which immediately doesn't have any um, dramatic effects. Those of you who have cooked, those of you who have, who have used leaven will, will understand it takes time for the leaven to do its work. And, and for people like me who, who, who want to cook, and, and having to wait for the hour or the two hours for that dough to rise can be uh, kind of a frustration. But this is, this is what Jesus is, is pointing to, is that the, the work of the leaven will have its way, and it will permeate the whole loaf. Everyone who is touched by the word of God, who is drawn in, who, who, who has the word of God planted in their heart, they will demonstrate and will, they will show the transforming work of that word in their life. It will have its way. It is unstoppable. So here we are in the 21st century, looking back and seeing this account that happened in the first century, being encouraged and reminded of the power and authority of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, and and reminding ourselves again that that kingdom comes first and foremost through the word of God and through the spirit of God. It is the word that has the same power today as it's ever had. As Paul will say in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In 2 Timothy 3.15, and how from a child you have been acquainted with the scriptures, with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise to salvation through faith in Christ. The word of God, Timothy, is what had its way in your life. It drew you to salvation. And to the church of Colossae, Jesus says, in in chapter one, verses five and six. Of this you have heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing. It is doing its work because that's what the word of God does. It confronts the kingdom and the authority of this world and it has its way because the kingdom of heaven has power to do its work. It is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. As we walk away this morning from this text, we walk away encouraged, knowing that God's kingdom has power, just as much today as it ever has, as we allow the power of the word to have its way in our heart, as we commit ourselves as God's people to declare that word in our conversations, understanding that word will never return void, trust the power of the word of God to have its way. Anchor your heart to the power of God. Trust in his ability to have his way in this world. God, we thank you that your kingdom will come that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we pray for that to happen, even now. We pray that you would allow us to be part of that kingdom work as we are faithfully committing ourselves to the word of God and seeking to spread that word to the people around us. God, may you be pleased with our delight in you. May our life be be dominated by the same expression we see in this woman and this crowd who are glorifying and praising God for his work. May we anchor our hearts 
in the power of God to have his way and not be unsettled by the troubles we see around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you. Have a great, great week.